Ephesians chapter 6. Hear now God's word, for he does indeed speak to us through it. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Father, you've created us for work. You are a God who works. You uh, desire us to glorify you in our work. And so we pray that you would teach us how we might do that. I pray that you would mobilize us for service so that we might give you glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most of us will spend the majority of our lives at work. You think about that for just a second. Uh, you, you will spend more time working than you will with your family, with your friends, at leisure, sleeping, any other thing, any other activity of your life. You'll spend the majority of it at work. Um, and given that, and given the fact that we were created in the image of a God who constantly reminds us that he is the creator the one who worked to make all things and who is the sustainer who continues to work to sustain and hold the universe by the work of his hands, who works salvation in his people, it is uh, not a surprise that we would tend to find our identity in our work. And by that I mean if I, if I were to ask you or someone was to ask you, tell me about yourself, we often take that question to, and we answer it in a way to where we start talking about what we do for a living, what kind of work we do. Because there's so much of how we uh, serve in the workplace that becomes our identity. And yet, um, I think there is, a, there is a pervasive sense within ourselves and within our culture that we ought to live a compartmentalized life. And by that I mean we have these different parts of our life, our work life, our home life, our spiritual life, and we try to keep these things separate. I mean, you hear talk, people talk about you need to have a proper work-life balance. Or you hear people say, well, you know, you can believe what you want with respect to spiritual matters, but don't impose that on me. Leave it at home. Leave it in private. Just do your job. Just do it um, the right way. Uh, but, you know, the reality is it's somewhat impossible for us to do that because we're one person. And in order to live with the integrity of single-mindedness, these different spheres of our lives will bleed over into each other. And God lays claim over all these aspects of our lives. We saw that over the past few weeks where you know, God was imposing a way that we ought to live in our marriages or in our families. And um, that's kind of what we see in our passage today. And the, the late author Dorothy Sayers wrote this. She wrote this essay called Why Work? Um, and she kind of gets at this, this sense. She says, it is the business of the church to recognize that the secular vocation, that is our work, is sacred. 
Our secular vocation is sacred. It is not right for the church to acquiesce to the notion that a man's life is divided into the time he spends on his work and the time he spends in serving God. He must be able to serve God in his work, and the work itself must be accepted and respected as the medium of divine creation. That work is the medium of divine creation. And that's, that's what we'll see in this passage, basically this, that God is at work through our work. And so we must work for Christ, and, and so doing, he works through us, um, his glorious purposes. Now, um, the passage talks about slaves and masters, and for us, 21st century Americans, this you know, the whole concept of slavery rightfully comes across as a barbaric and inhumane uh, type of thing. And, um, right, and that's, that's a good thing, that we would react that way. Um, but we have to understand kind of the context, context of this slavery. Now, students, when we think slavery, we typically associate that with the racially oriented slavery that is part of our history and that's not exactly the, the slavery that was uh, the context that Paul was writing into. Um, slavery in the Roman Empire was pervasive. And by pervasive, I mean there was, on some estimates, 60 million slaves, which means that about half of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves, and the other half were slave owners. Um, and it Slavery was the workforce of the Roman Empire. And it's not just how we would typically think of slaves as far as domestic labor or manual labor, but it was also other jobs that we wouldn't expect, such as doctors and teachers and administrators. Um, but this whole concept of slavery, that slaves were considered property. Um, where they were, these people were purchased. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with respect to kids, that kids that, babies that were uh, rejected by their fathers were often purchased to be slaves, or slaves could be inherited from their parents, or uh, someone could become a slave as a means of uh, settling a debt, uh, and prisoners often became slaves. But it was, it was part of the culture it was the way that the work was done, and it wasn't really something that, it was just accepted. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem that anybody was out trying to solve. And thankfully, over the course of history, the economic landscape has changed from people being owned as possessions, uh, but the, the heart remains the same, and that's, that's where we're going to kind of look at it. I, when we talk about the economics of the workplace, this, this was that in Paul's day, but we need to think about it from the context of employees and employers. And that's, that's the, the, the contemporary grid that we're going to look at this passage, is, is through that, that mindset. And so when we divide this passage up, we'll just divide it simply across those lines. There are commands to employees, and there are commands to employers. So uh, he starts by saying... Um, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, we, we've talked about this over the past, the other 
pairings within that household code and how the original authors or recipients would have been shocked that Paul would address, say, the wives directly or the children directly. And we would have seen, they would have, they would have been shocked that the slaves or bond servants would have been uh, addressed directly as well. They, the, the servants were considered property. Uh, Aristotle said this, he said, a slave is a living tool, a living tool, uh, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Uh, he also said a slave is a kind of a possession with a soul. So that was the mindset of, uh, of people in this day, that a slave was a tool. And, but Paul doesn't see these people that way. Paul sees them through the eyes of Christ and sees these bondservants, these slaves, as people created in the image of God and co-heirs with Christ and members of his church. Obviously, that they, they would have been there. He, he assumed that they would be there, so he's, he's writing to them. And he, he commands them, he says, obey your earthly masters. And then he, and then he talks about how. He says, obey them with fear and trembling. So there is an aspect of uh, obeying with reverence and awe. Uh, a bit of a reverence knowing that the master had absolute power over the slave. He could literally take the life of the slave if he wanted to. So that there's an aspect of fear of what could this master do. But not all masters were like that. Um, there were kind masters. There were cruel masters. And But Paul says, Regardless of the disposition of your master, or to us, the disposition of your employer, your manager, obey them with reverence, with fear and trembling. Then he says, with a sincere heart. So the word we, we use for sincere comes from, uh, and they would have had this mindset, it's two Latin words, sin and sarah, which literally means without wax, and I know that doesn't make any sense, but uh, let me let me explain. So, uh, when uh, people who sculpted sculptures or made pottery sometimes made mistakes or things broke, and they would attempt to fix those things with wax, and they would put it out as though it was an authentic um, piece of pottery or sculpture. Uh, but it wasn't because it well, had flaws. It was imperfect. It was a fake. And so they grew to say, well, I want a, a sculpture that is without wax, sincera. I want a sincere thing. And so what he's saying is, and we understand sincerity the same way, we, we, it's, a, it's a true um, service. It's from the heart, uh, a sincere heart. You're not, you're not faking it. Um, you're doing it, uh, obeying from the heart. Um, and and he, he gives the reason why. He says, um, as you, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Um, this, this whole notion, this, this term eye service seems to be a term that Paul invents um, being an eye servant, essentially. And it makes me think of when I was a, a cadet, in the army, so this, these are college students that are all 
preparing to become army officers, and they would organize everybody into units, all these cadets, and the cadets would, as part of training for leadership, different cadets would take turns leading the unit, and there was this unfortunate term that got used for certain individuals, which was someone was a spotlight ranger, and by that it meant that these cadets, when they were out front and they were leading, they were gung-ho, they were fired up, they were astute and they demanded, you know, everybody follow everything well. But when they weren't, when they were just with the rest of the cadets, they were lazy, they caused problems, um, they, were, they were difficult. When they were in the spotlight, they were like an army ranger, but when they were not, they caused problems. And that's, I think, kind of getting to the heart of this eye service. It's somebody, when the eye is on them, they are doing the best that they can, but when, when the cats are away, the mice will play. They, they, will, they will just do what they want to do. It's not a from the heart, all on type of service. And he, and he talks about people pleasers, you know, serving for the sake of um, just the, the pleasing of, of people. But his, his heart is, is very different. Um, he says we ought to serve as you would Christ, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And I, I dare say that for any one of us that loves the Lord Jesus and has an awe and reverence for who he is, if we were serving, if we were doing our work as, we, as though we were doing it for Christ, if Christ himself was our employer, I think we'd have a very different way of carrying out our work, wouldn't we? I think we'd go much beyond the you know, bare minimum, just checking the box, perfunctory type of obedience that we tend to do. Or we would do, do, do these things um, from the heart, the will of God from the heart. Um, and, and he says, do it as if, it, it's like he's saying, serve as if you would Christ, but he goes even beyond that. It's, it's like he's saying, it's not just as if you're serving Christ, but he says, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you really are serving Christ. Christ is your master, because notice what he says. He says, verse 8, he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Almost as if he says, you know, as people pleasers, we often work for that reward from our earthly managers, and regardless of whether our earthly managers give us that reward that we're looking for, whatever good we do, our heavenly master, Jesus Christ, will give that back to us. We'll, we will receive back that from the Lord, whether slave or free. Um, and, I mean, obviously the economic landscape has changed between then and now, but I, but clearly our hearts have not changed. You know, over 25 years of working in the software industry, I have seen compensation plans and benefits in the workplace rise and fall from the dot-com boom of the late 90s to the dot-com bust and just the way that employers treated employees. And um, I remember one particular in, in situation in a workplace we had had benefits, and then they started taking benefits away, probably as doing the right thing for the company. 
and offloading expenses for, say, insurance plans onto employees a little bit more. And I remember having conversations with some of my coworkers where they said, well, because they don't offer, you know, stock options or anything like that, you know, they're taking away benefits. There's really no point in working hard anymore. There's really nothing in it for me anymore. There's no promise of reward. Everything's just take away. It's just a paycheck now. And brothers and sisters, I think we have to war against that type of mindset. Um, we are united to Christ. And Christ is a glorious worker, and we reflect his glory. We reflect on him with the way that we serve. Uh, our union with him ought to transform what we do. And Christ, Christ was the creator of all things, and he, we, we ought to expect that if we, if we were to visualize Christ in his earthly ministry and how he worked as a man, I think it would often put us, it probably would put us to shame with how we work. Um, the same Dorothy Sayers wrote this. She said, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. And the spirit that drove him to work is the spirit that dwells within us and empowers our work. And so as we work for Christ, I, there's, we ought to be driven to working with all of our heart and all of our being. And I'll give you two, two reasons. One is um, Christ, by setting us free, has set us free from the slavery of people-pleasing and clinging and grabbing for earthly rewards so that we could be set free to serve Christ with our work and obtain that eternal reward. I mean, the, the best that we can get now will perish when we die. There's nothing that we can take with us. They're, they're transient rewards. We, we clamor for these things that are so fleeting and so fickle. And yet Christ has promised us himself. He has said that we have an inheritance that is secure in heaven, and that is ours. And how we work um, is reflective of have we grasped the fact that we are free in Christ to serve him with all of our being. And I think that works itself out in the diligence, the, 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 how hard we work, and the quality of how we work. So whether you are, regardless of what your job is, you can serve as though you are serving Christ as you serve the people that you do. So whether you, you teach you can teach as though you are teaching Christ's children. You're teaching to support him. He is your principal. He is, he is guiding every decision that you make. If you are a salesperson, you can sell the, your company's goods to, with the mind that Christ himself is providing for your coworkers through your work, you are benefiting your company and your, your customers for their good as Christ works through you. Um, and even if you work at home, you, you, can, 
you can cook a meal as though you Jesus Christ is going to come and eat that meal. You know, you pour your 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 mindset can change. You pour your heart into it. And kids, when you do your chores, you, when when you clean up around the house, your mindset ought to be: What if Jesus Christ were to walk in and see my room, this this house? I'm preparing it for him. I'm working for him. That's that's the kind of mindset that Paul exhorts us to. But um, also it gets to effort. If we are working for Christ, then we, we orient the way that we work and the degree that we work to what he calls us to do. And to, what I mean by that is our God commands us to rest. There's a, pro, there's a proverb that says... Um, do not wear yourself out to become rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. And if we are enslaved to people-pleasing and gaining these temporary rewards, we can pour all of our lives into having something now that our whole life goes out of balance. But Christ says, serve me, and I say, rest. Have balance in your life. So um, it's, it sets us free from that slavery, but also in our work, Christ himself serves through us, serves the people that we serve. And so we serve with his might and to his glory. I mean, we are united to Christ. We are his body. And so as we work, Christ is brought into that, and he is serving all those people that you serve with your job through you. And so, as you bring him in, serve with his might. Serve to his glory and bring him glory in your work. Well, some of us also have had the responsibility, the blessing of being employers or managers over people. And that's where Paul kind of turns next is to, as he speaks to masters. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Masters had absolute authority over their slaves. Um, there are many reports that many of them were tyrants and abusive. Um, they would use threatening to control their slaves. They would threaten beatings. They would threaten sexual harassment. They might threaten to sell the male slaves away from the household to separate them from their family members or their loved ones. Um, and it's in that mindset that Paul says, masters, do the same to them. Now, he's not saying, masters, you need to obey your slaves like your slaves need to obey masters, but have that same mindset. Recognize that even how you operate as masters must be conditioned by your relationship with Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. That must transform the way that you live. And he says, uh, stop your threatening. L literally what he says is he says, give up your threatening. So that threatening, again, was the means of controlling their slaves. And he's saying, give up that control. Be willing to do that. And again, you know, the environment has changed, but that heart is still there. I mean, employers still threaten things such as, I'm not going to give you that promotion, or you're not going to get that bonus, or maybe I'm going to have to cut your pay or lay you off. And 
You can watch the news to hear about people who are in power that use their position of power to sexually harass those people under them. And, and what Paul says is these types of things, these abuses of power, taking the power and authority that has been given to them by God and use them for their own purposes is wrong. That our authority, any authority that we have, is never absolute. It is a derived authority from God himself and is to be used on God's behalf for the benefit of those people under us. And so as an employer or as a master, God would say, you must love your employees as I would love them. You would, must care for them and provide for them as I would do these things. And he gives what almost seems like a threat, a veiled threat. He says, do this and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Notice how he puts the slaves and the masters on the same plane. There, it makes them equals. You both have the same true master. Your, your authority is derived from mine. And I, as your master, am commanding you to love your slaves like this. But he also says there's no partiality with them. There's that God, God is making clear that um, Christ cares for the threatened and the abused. And um, he loves them. And he is zealous to make sure that that type of environment ends. Uh, he, there's no partiality, and, and yet in, often in our hearts there is partiality in the workplace. Um, R.C. Sproul uh, told a story of um, he was studying a book by somebody who was working on work-labor relationships and something that he had observed when he went into a hospital where he noticed that the nurses, he was observing just nonverbal behavior, nonverbal communication within the people that worked there. And the nurses, as they were standing around, a, a doctor walked in, and the nurses all perked up. And they were very attentive, smiles on their faces, eager to talk with this particular doctor. And the doctor left, and one of the, particular, one of the nurses who had perked up uh, started walking down the hall. And as she walked down the hall, there was a man who was a housekeeper who was pushing a cart with soiled laundry down. And he had a smile on his face, and his head had lifted up to look at this nurse. And as he approached her, her eyes dropped to the ground and turned away, and she sped up and walked past. Because to her, that, that man was not important, whereas the doctor was important. And, you know, I haven't seen that in a hospital, but I've seen that in the workplace. A CEO, someone important, an important customer comes in, everybody tidies up and gets excited. But somebody who's lower on the management hierarchy, not so interesting and disregarded. But beloved, our, our master shows no partiality. There is dignity and honor and value in everyone, not because of their position that they hold, but because they are created in the image of the Almighty God. And if God doesn't show partiality, he calls us to honor and value and show dignity regardless of the position. And 
that, that ought to be an encouragement to some of us who are not in high positions, that, that your God, regardless of your position, he adores you. He loves you, and he loves you no less than the person who is at the highest echelons of a, of a major company. His eye is on you, he cares for you, and there is no partiality. And if that is how our God loves, as children of our God, who are imitating that beloved, that God who loves us, that's how we ought to love those whom we are around, with no condescension or arrogance, but with respect and honor and dignity. So as we conclude this passage, uh, I really just want to spend one final thing to, to talk about Paul's treatment about slavery, because um, it's been disappointing to people across the ages, maybe you've thought about this, about how Paul doesn't just cancel out slavery with one stroke of the pen. He seems nonchalant about it, like it doesn't even really matter. And we know from history there have been incredible wickedness that's, that's taken place as a result of slavery. So how, how could Paul accept slavery? And how, why doesn't he deal with it more pointedly? Well, um, here's where I would start, is I would say Paul is not endorsing slavery, but he's conditioning it by the way that he's writing. He is, um, he is telling the masters how they ought to live in the midst of this relationship. Uh, it is true that he, he doesn't seem too concerned about it. Uh, there are other passages in Scripture um, where Paul seems to prefer being free rather than being in slavery. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 says, he's writing, he says, Were you a bondservant when you were called to Christ? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But he, he seems almost largely like it's neither here nor there. Whether you're free or a bondservant, I mean, it's probably better if you're free, but it doesn't really matter. And Paul himself talks about, calls himself a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ. Uh, he, he sees himself in that mindset, and to a certain extent, we should all see ourselves as slaves of Christ. Paul also says that we were bought with a price. That means we are a possession. We are a treasured possession of our God. And so, it's, but it's almost like the, the temporary, earthly, cultural relationship, it's, to Paul, it's, it's neither, neither here nor there, um, to a certain extent. Um, secondly, Paul puts this whole notion of this relationship of slaves and masters side by side, marriage and family, but it's very different. Because if you remember, both with respect to family and marriage, those relationships are rooted in the creation ordinance going back to the creation account. And Paul makes that clear, that it's rooted in Genesis. Whereas this relationship between slaves and masters, it's just kind of there. It's the way that the cultural culture worked it out as a part of living out the cultural mandate to work in the midst of the world. And so it, it's, it's not on the same plane. But at the same time, you have to see that what Paul does in this passage, while he's not immediately wiping it out, he is 
he's destroying the he's he's wrecking the foundation so that it ultimately crumbles so th- there are two principles that were upholding this slavery relationship and those two principles were the inequality between slaves and masters but also um, the, the power that masters had to threaten in order to control their slaves. And probably played the game Jenga, the block game, played as a family, and you, you build the tower up and you're taking pieces out, but then finally you get to some point and somebody takes a block out and the whole structure crumbles. And it's like Paul pulls out a, a couple blocks that, that makes the whole foundation shaky. And those two things are, he... he he goes to those two principles that are holding slavery together. First, he, he says that slaves and masters are equals. They are, as he said throughout the book, they are brothers of, in Christ. They are part of the family of God. Here, they're, they're common sinners. They're, and now they have the same master. So they're equals. They're, there's, there's no inequality. They're brothers. But also, he takes away the, the means of holding it together, which is the control through threatening. He says, give up your threatening. Give up your threatening. And as he does this, over the course of time, what we have seen is that the structure of slavery has crumbled. It was like he pulled a thread and eventually the whole garment unraveled. And the, and that gets to kind of the, the final thing I want to say about this is that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Scripture is not focused on social change. Scripture is focused on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and reconciling us to God and then having us live out that gospel in our lives. But, but, when we understand and receive that gospel and when God's people live out that gospel in the public sphere, God works social change through his people. It is not the purpose of this text. It's not the purpose of scripture. But God works that change in the course of history. And um, this is really important because this is something that the world and the liberal wing of the church do not understand. Because the world and the liberal wing of the church would focus on ethics that is how we live, what is right, apart from the theological truth of who God is and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you can't do that because what is the foundation of that ethic? There is no foundation if it's not rooted in Jesus Christ. True social change is profoundly theological. It is profoundly rooted in who God is who, and our relationship with, with God. And so... If there is to be any change, true change, lasting change, that is the right kind of change with the right kind of foundation, it comes as God transforms his people and they live out that gospel in the public sphere. Through that comes the end of tyranny and oppression and injustice as God's people are salt and light in the midst of the world. And that's what he's, that's what he's brought about when it comes to slavery. That, that's... We can see how God has done that. But beloved, you know, I mean, we don't know God's providence. And we can, we can look at uh, the world as it is, and we see this ebb and flow of, 
over the course of history about how God's people have been faithful in the public workplace or work public sphere and not. And it looks as though we are on a decline where the church is being marginalized and privatized and told, take your faith and be private about it. And that would be disastrous to our culture, and we know that. But what we know is that Christ is building his church, and it will not be overcome. And we know that regardless of whether we're in an ebb and flow, we will never see heaven on this side of glory. And so that must motivate us to be faithful in the environment, regardless of whether it's despised and rejected. Because that's what our master calls us to do, is to live out the gospel um, in our daily lives. But our hope, our hope, which will not disappoint us, is that one day we will see our master return and he will remove all oppression from his glorious kingdom and he will establish that glorious reign and we will see him face to face and we will have that hope and reward that has been promised. We read earlier from the book of Philemon. Um, Philemon is, I think, a, a beautiful picture of what Paul is, or what, what, the, what the gospel does in the midst of this relationship. Uh, Elder Broom mentioned this, but uh, Philemon was a master, a wealthy man who had a slave, Onesimus, who ran away. And Onesimus somehow found Paul. And Paul took him in, and Onesimus came to know the gospel of grace. And Paul sends Onesimus back. And what you see in that exchange is the beauty of the gospel at work in this type of relationship. Onesimus's name means useful, uh, but what Paul says is that there's a transformation of this man. He says to Philemon, he says, he was once useless to you, but now he is useful as a result of the gospel because Onesimus is now working for Christ, not just for Philemon. But at the same time, there's a, there's a renewed relationship. He says to Philemon, he says, receive him back and may, and, and may he be more than a, a slave, but as a, receive him as a beloved brother. There's a reconciling, there is a dignity, there is a unity, a common purpose in service. And beloved, that's, that's the fruit of the gospel in the workplace. That's the fruit of the gospel in the workplace. Effectiveness, productivity, service, dignity, and love. And for the, the benefit of those people that we serve, for the glory of our God, may that be how our God transforms us so that we would serve with all of our might, serving not for men, but for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've given us the glorious privilege of being able to be your representatives in the workplace. Thank you that you give us joy in serving with the gifts that you've given us. I pray that you would forgive us for any laziness or anything that's we've been convicted of as we've studied your word, but I thank you that you have set us free to serve you with all of our might. Would you, would you make us effective? Would you serve through us? And may you be glorified in all these things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.